Music to a librarian's ears. A sudden hush. This is truly wonderful. Good evening and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. We are delighted that you are all here today. And as I told our guest speaker, there's such a buzz in the air and it's just so exciting and everything. And to see him on Morning Joe and then he's here, it's just wonderful. And we are just so excited. We are also so excited that our partnership with the Open Society Institute of Baltimore has blossomed and grown to the point that we are firmly established in trying to make sure that the library is a place where ideas can be uh, discussed, sometimes battled, and really open for everyone. And so I just want to personally thank my partner in crime, uh, Ms. Diana Morris, and bring her to the stage, the director, chief, and everything else of the Open Society Institute of Baltimore. Well, thanks, Carla, and thanks to everyone here for joining us uh, tonight. We're really so pleased that you're here uh, to have yet another conversation about race in this wonderful series that we've been able to have with the Enoch Pratt. In fact, they've been our partner for now, I think we're into our sixth year, and as we explore this issue of race, and I think your continued participation and presence lets us know that these are important conversations for us to continue to have. I want to give a big thanks to many of you here. We have many of our Open Society Institute board members here and Leadership Council members and donors, and we thank you for it. And in particular, uh, Sheila Murthy and Vernon Reed are two of our donors who have made this particular Talking About Race series possible, so we thank them very much for their support. I think many of you know that we've been fortunate in this series to have simply exceptional speakers who have addressed many different aspects of race, those who understand how race affects opportunity and justice, those who have considered, uh, and they have considerable experience using different kinds of approaches and tools uh, to address some of the barriers that uh, many of us in the community uh, are affected by, racial discrimination and implicit racism among them. And at the Open Society Institute, we have been very aware of uh, racial dynamics as we seek to increase opportunity uh, and make justice uh, available to all of our residents. Uh, we particularly are attuned, uh, we hope, to those people who are living in poverty and who historically or currently um, are experiencing discrimination in this city. Many of the topics that we do address in this Talking About series relate to some of the priorities that we've set for ourselves at the Open Society Institute. And those include providing drug addiction treatment to all those who need it, uh, curtailing the overuse of incarceration, uh, trying to keep people in the community and, and, and having the kinds of support they need so that they never get close to the juvenile or criminal justice system. And for those who do get involved, making sure that there are true second chances. We also work to keep children engaged in school, uh, and there's so many ways that we want uh, to make sure that kids are never pushed out, uh, particularly because of, of race or gender or, or disability. So tonight, we're going to have the honor uh, of hearing from Charles Blow, uh, whose columns now run um, 
twice a week in the New York Times. I'm sure many of you have seen them. And in his column, which have uh, run over the years, he's addressed many issues uh, that do address race and the challenges that uh, many of us confront to equal opportunity in this country. Those who follow him know that he is incisive and informative and that his approach has been to use uh, data and, and analyze it to illustrate the many challenges that we now need collectively to change. He has written his recent memoir, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, which has already, as many of you have probably seen, uh, received accolades. It tells his very personal story. And I would say that his story and his book are important for, for many different reasons, but among them I would certainly count his ability to bring out those poignant moments, the, the actions and words of others that shape how we as children and as young people begin to perceive ourselves and the kind of uh, way we begin to understand the role that race and bias and discrimination have in how we have an inner dialogue with ourselves about who we are and about the kind of personas that we feel we need to develop or want to have. So I'm going to give a quick uh, introduction tonight because I know all of you are very eager to hear directly from our, our, our speaker. Uh, Charles Blow actually began his uh, journalistic career as a graphic artist at the Detroit News, and then he joined the New York Times in 1994, first as a graphic editor and quickly became the uh, paper's graphics director. And that position he held for nine years. In that role, he led the Times to a Best of Show Award from the Society of News Design uh, for its information graphics uh, around 9-11. That was actually the first time that the award was given for uh, graphics coverage. He then left the Times in 2006 to become the art director of National Geographic magazine. But he returned to the Times in 2008 when he began writing his column. Mr. Blow graduated magna cum laude from Gambling State University in Louisiana, uh, where he received his BA in Maths Communications, and he lives in Brooklyn with three, his three children. So our moderator tonight is my uh, dear colleague, uh, Sean Dove from the Open Society Foundations. He's served as, uh, he has been serving as the manager of our campaign for black male achievement since uh, 2008. He has more than two decades of leadership experience in youth development, education, and community building. Sean actually served as one of the founding directors of New York City's Beacon School movement in the early 1990s uh, while he was working with the Harlem Children's Zone. And at the National Guild of Community Schools of the Arts, he led a national initiative that partnered community schools of the arts and public housing communities. And that took place in 20 different U.S. cities. Uh, then, before that, he was New York Vice President for Mentor um, and National Mentoring Partnership, and there he initiated a strategic response to the lack of African-American and Latino male mentors uh, for New York City uh, boys by creating a public awareness and a recruitment initiative, which is called the Male Mentoring Project. Uh, Sean was also a Charles Revson Fellow at Columbia University, and he received his BA in English at uh, Wesleyan University. So, we're almost about to begin our program. I just want to say a few logistics. Uh, as some of you know, in our format, uh, we will first hear uh, from Charles and Sean, and then we will have time for uh, questions and answers. Uh, please use the microphone that we have to address the speaker so everyone will be able to hear you. 
And I couldn't close without giving a, a shout out for a big event that we have coming that I think many of you would enjoy attending. It's, uh, uh, it's called Big Change Baltimore 2014. And for more information about it, you can simply go to bigchangebaltimore.org. So I hope you will go there and then join us uh, for the event uh, on October 27th. And finally, if you aren't already signed up, um, I do hope that you will go to our website, uh, which is uh, audaciousideas.org, audaciousideas.org. And if you sign up, we'll be very happy to put you on our mailing list and make sure that you do get invitations, not only to these kinds of events, but others that we sponsor. So with that, uh, enjoy, and I'll turn it over to Sean. Thank you, Diane. Thank you, Diana, for setting the table, and welcome, everyone. Uh, we know that we are in store for a wonderful, enriching conversation uh, with Charles M. Blow. I'm just so excited to uh, be here with you. And uh, I just told my wife, I'm like, I'm really nervous. I'm going to be on the stage. I'm going to be talking to Charles Blow, the iconic Charles Blow, and who has just written about uh, so many issues in his New York Times column that uh, we at Open Society Foundations care so much about. And one other uh, household item, for those of you that are engaged in the Digital Underground Railroad, otherwise known as Twitter, uh, and will be, is, uh, is anyone, raise your hand? Okay, okay. So just want to let you know that uh, the hashtag for the movement that uh, Charles is building around his book is uh, hashtag Team Fire. So if you are tweeting about that tonight, and uh, his, uh, his handle is Charles M. Blow. And if you want to know mine, it's Dove Soars, S-O-A-R-S. All right? So, Charles, welcome. Thank you. So, Wait, are you guys going to be able to hear me? Is that? No, we're good. Okay, perfect. Thank you. No? No. Okay. Is it on? Oh, it's on. Okay. All right, so bring it closer to you because I think I've said all that I'm going to say. Uh, we, we, we were upstairs, and the question is, well, what are you going to talk about? And I, 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 Joey said, I'm just going to ask Charles what's up. <laughs> just, let, just, just, just let him go because uh, he is uh, he's Charles Blow. But my first question is... You know, so many people and, and people of stature have accomplished things, and some of us that have not dream of <laughs> writing a memoir. Okay. Right? And can you just share with us just the motivation of uh, birthing this memoir, and also tell us what were some of the fears and barriers that you went through to get from this, I'm going to do this memoir, mm -hmm. to birthing. Right, right. I mean, well, I think, you know, people often think of this as, uh, they want you to give a sociological answer to this question, right? That, they, that, you, that it is an, an, an advocacy question, that, that what was the point? What are you trying to get across? What, are, what is the position that you're taking? So do you, right, and, and my and, and although there may be sociological motivations, my primary motivation is literary, that, that I have a story that I believe that I can write. 
I have a story that's in me. You know, my Angela used to say, "There's no greater burden than carrying a story in you that uh, uh, carrying a story, an unwritten story inside you." Um, and as a writer, that is truly a burden. And so, you, when you realize that there's something that you have to say, you kind of have to say it. Um, so, so that, that was part of it. And, and I started not even thinking that I was writing a book. I was writing. You know, um, the, the the editors at Essence Magazine, the New York Times building and, and Essence Magazine used to be right across Times Square from each other. There was one little restaurant between us called Haru. It's a Japanese restaurant. I don't know. We used to all go in there and drink at night. So uh, <laughs> everybody would come in and complain. And we were there one night, and they and they um, the subject of me being a single parent came up, and they said, "Oh my God, you should write something about you know for our Father's Day issue." And I hadn't written in forever. And they wanted me to write about the experience of having to learn to do my daughter's hair, which I had no clue what to do. Um, and so I wrote this little thing. It may, may have been like three or 400 words. It wasn't even a big deal. And I thought to myself, oh, I, you know, I have a lot of these stories, and I haven't written in a while, and I would like to do it, and it's a creative exercise. So I just started writing these short essays. And, but I never got around to trying to sell them to anyone. And, I just, and it, it, they kept building up. And so, you know, it's 20,000, 30,000 words, 40,000 words, and it just got to be more and more of a thing, and I was writing more and more of my life. Um, but it wasn't until um, 2009 that I realized that there was a narrative there that was a good one to write as a book. Um, there were two little boys, uh, both of whom were 11 years old. Uh, they didn't know each other. One lived in Boston, one lived in Atlanta. They both hang themselves 10 days apart from each other because they had both endured you know, unrelenting homophobic bullying. And I just thought, this just can't be. There, there can't be this much pain in the world. There can't be this much sorrow in the world. And, there, and it can't happen while I'm alive and I can do something about it. And I saw it from both directions. I saw it both from having been the child who was bullied in that way and who had also thought of taking his life when he was very young. And I saw it as a parent and looking at my own little kids who were about the, you know, uh, that age at that time and thinking, you know, how painful, you know, the enormous grief, the enormous uh, staggering sorrow to walk into a room after you've called a kid to dinner and they didn't come, and you walk into the room, and you have to cut down the lifeless body of an 11-year-old boy. I don't even know how you recover from that. Um, and I just thought, you know, I know this story. I can write this story. And this is, I can link together all these little personal essays that I've been writing. And, I mean, some of them I had to toss, you, you know, part of the writing exercise. Once you realize what the narrative is, then you really begin to write. And then a lot of the, you know, dreck that you've written before, you just toss out of the way. Um, <laughs> But uh, then I knew that this was a narrative that made sense. This was, this was kind of my swan song to these little boys because a lot of times, when, particularly when small children commit suicide, they don't even have the, 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 the forethought to leave a note. They don't, they don't, sometimes they don't have the language. They don't have the language to, to, ex, to explain their suffering, let alone to explain to explain to the people who will be left behind why they are gone. And I, you know, I said to myself, you know, I have language. If, of the, all the things that some people have, my gift is that I have language. And, and this, is, this is their 
note. Mm -hmm. Thank you, thank you for that. And so the book covers so many uh, issues uh, from your life and your story. It's a book about uh, community. It's a, a book about resiliency, and I'm going to come back to that later. Um, and just want to stay right where uh, the inspiration came from uh, to, to do the memoir. You talk about and share your just navigation of the journey of defining your masculinity yes. uh, and your sexual uh, identity. Right. Uh, there was a recent quote when you were at the Ford Foundation when you said the uh, masculinity is a wide sea with deep and shallow ends. And I don't know if that's exactly right. right it might right. have been an ocean. Um, can you, for um, those of us that have not read the book, but will buy the book after this. <laughs> and everybody else get up and leave. I'm done. <laughs> Tell us that story, the, the, the story of uh, Chester. And I want to spend some time there because there was some searing uh, pain as okay. a very young young boy there. So tell us the, uh, the, the that navigation. You you want me to talk about the 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 masculinity, or you want me to talk specifically about ch child sexual abuse? Well, I think there's a connection. Well, let's start with the um, the masculinity. Right. Well, I mean, the point that I'm trying to make, and and uh, it, you know, I don't know if it's a point. It's not an advocacy book. And I keep trying to remember, remind myself of that and remind everyone else of that because uh, literary memoir. But but one of the points that it will cover is is uh, that we have drawn masculinity perilously narrow and incredibly rigid. Uh, so much so that you know it's it's like uh, writing a note in a song too high so that only a few people will ever reach it and no one is ever meant to hold it. And so what we end up doing with little boys is setting them up for failure because they can never be the man that they... We always tell them, you know, step up, be a man, be a real... And the man that we're telling them to be, they can never be because no one can be. The, the ideal of it is unattainable. Right? And, and so every time they fail to meet the mark and they are vulnerable and they cry and they fall down and they say that I can't do something and somebody says, well, man up. And they are injured by that every time because, because they are being taught over and over and over again that masculinity is a peak of a very sleep, uh, steep hill rather than being a, an ocean mm -hmm. that is incredibly broad. And it is shallow in some places and deep in some places and it is rolling in some places and it is placid in some places and some places sometimes that changes with the person on the day that it that they are experiencing it and you can have love you can love and you can feel loss and you can feel pain and that none of that reduces you as a man in fact your ability to recognize that it is happening and articulate it and stand firm in it actually increases you as a man because you are acknowledging and you are brave enough to say, I am human. A tear can fall from your eyes and it does not reduce you. It means that you are human. And 
one of the beauties of my life story is that I get a chance to discuss all of these varying kinds of men. And, they, and they're all, in my eyes, still men. They're just different. And they're, and they're fragile sometimes. And they make horrible mistakes sometimes. And some of them are heroes, and some of them are angelic, and some of them are devils. And that is all part of the male experience because it is part of the human experience. And once we free boys up to be human, we free them up to be men. And so much of uh, the story, there's this uh, portrait of resiliency, your resiliency, and rising uh, up with the support of family, mother, uh, from you know, really impoverished conditions. Uh, and at some point, you say that uh, the moral obligation to love yourself as you are. And we were touching on earlier the uh, uh, issue with Chester mm-hmm. and the uh, sexual uh, molestation. Right. And weaving a, a story where at eight years old, um, through those betrayal experiences, right. feeling worthless, but rising above that. And you say, you know, this is moral obligation. And how do you get from where you were at eight right. to feeling and being able to say to a young man that might be in this audience that, wow, I was Charles Blow when I was, or oh, I'm Charles Blow now. Right. And, and, and how do you get to that point of loving yourself? Well, I mean, for me, it came through uh, kind of maturation and growing up and, you know, a lot of uh, falling down in the process of growing up. Um, and, you know, I didn't, I didn't have language to tell people what was troubling me in my life, and therefore no one could really help because they didn't even know that there was a problem there. I mean, so very often, particularly children who have been victims of childhood sexual abuse, they, they very often do not tell. And they, many of them become exactly the way that I was, become incredibly talented at hiding. Um, and so for me, part of it was, was release, confessing it to yourself. I mean, as I write in the book, concealment makes the soul a swamp, and confession is how you drain it, right? Um, you, ha- you have to find the courage in yourself to say, this is me, this is what has happened to me, and I, am, and, I re- and I am not reduced by it. In fact, I am increased by the idea that I have the courage to stand up and say that this is part of my history and this is part of my life. And the moment you stand up in that way, you have already grown, Right? You have already grown. In that moment that you gather the courage of confession, you have already increased your stature in the world. And that's why I say, if I were talking to that kid, I would say to them, whatever, you, whatever you're going to turn out to be, whoever you're going to be attracted to, that really doesn't matter much to me. Who you lie down with doesn't matter nearly as much as what you stand up for. Right? 
And your difference, whatever that difference may be, is not deviance. And you have a moral obligation to yourself to love yourself exactly the way that you are. Hey, thank you. So this is the Talking About Race series that has been happening in Boston, I mean, Baltimore. Sorry. <laughs> I know I've been on the road a while, but I thought I was in Baltimore. Uh, for a number of years, and it's, uh, in, in, in many respects, a courageous conversation. Uh, I think it's a community-building conversation. And I think it's a conversation that many communities are not at least taking a dive into the shallow end. And it is certainly an issue that you write about extensively uh, in your column. Uh, it is certainly part of your story. Um, in the book, can you just talk a little bit about what you envision in communities across the country just like this? Mm -hmm. uh, where do we go from here, from conversation to deeper dialogue, deeper exchange, and beginning to change behavior? And, and, and uh, specifically on, on the dialogue about race? Yes. You know, I mean, first, I, I think, you know, I wrote a column recently about kind of trying to set up some parameters for these kinds of discussions. And, you know, one of the, the, one of the three things that I said in that column was um, that you have to grant immunity to people. If you are going to have an honest conversation about race, people are going to say something that hurt your feelings. Right, and be, but be, but if they are saying it in 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 a spirit of goodwill and in search of understanding, you have to be grown enough and big enough to take it. Right, they're going to say things like, "I am afraid around people like you in these sorts of circumstances because of blah 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 blah," and you have to take that. You cannot be like three weeks from now over the water cooler. Like you remember when Rob was in that room and tried to tell me he was scared at the <laughs> ATM around, you know. That can't, you can't do that, right? That's, you're not playing fair. That's not, that's not playing by the rules. You have to grant immunity and let people be able to confess that, that we have biases and, that, and, that, and, they, and, how, and let them get it out and so you can then start from that point and say, okay, this is how this makes me feel. When you say something like that, that's how this makes me feel. And how does it, you know, and you go back and forth with that. And, uh, and another thing we have to do is we have to understand and confess uh, privilege and oppression, mm -hmm. both historical and current. You, you, know, you can't deny that, that those things exist and then have to hope, uh, hope to have an honest conversation around these subjects. Um, but I think that, and I think, and the other thing that I said in that column was that we have to do it in the dormant periods. We can't just wait until something happens like a Ferguson and then wait until passions are, are fanned and then we want to have these kind of No, actually, you know, you know, like the alcoholics say, it's five o'clock somewhere. Well, <laughs> it's, it's not Ferguson somewhere. Somewhere is okay. And wherever it's dormant, have the conversation then where, the, where passions are not roiling. Because, you know, in that moment, it's really difficult 
and, and, and the conversation becomes a one-way exchange. And I think very often, I think too often, we tend to think of race conversations as this is a chance where the minorities get to talk and everybody else needs to shut up and listen to us because we are aggrieved. No, that's not how race conversations need to happen. Everybody needs to, it's multidirectional. You say something, and then I say something. And I'm, you know, and I say something, that you say something that, that, that I think is wrong, and you say something that I think is wrong, and we try to figure out how we get to a point of understanding. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned that moment of a you know, crisis, and we're responding around uh, a racial incident, and so you have written about Ferguson, uh, and you've talked about the fear of a black body, uh, the criminalization of, uh, of black men. Um, what are you hearing and seeing uh, as you travel the country um, where there might be pockets of hope and resolution uh, on this issue of the criminalization of, uh, of black men and, and, and where is the hope that you see and feel in this nation? Hmm. I mean, I, I mean, this this particular tour is not really about that, so I, I can't say that that I've even kind of had my ear to the ground and paying particular attention to to that particular issue. And that's that's not the kind of question that people have asked me. They, it's, it's been kind of more specific to the book, um, but I, I think that in general. More information is always better. I mean, that's kind of what I do. I mean, the, the column becomes, you try not to make it be advocacy, but you're definitely taking a position. And part of the position that I take is that, you know, to shine light into the darkest places. And one of those is is our uh, kind of misconceptions and mythologies around both data of criminal, uh, criminal uh, criminality and our perceptions of, of each other, particularly how we perceive black and brown people and how skewed that is uh, and there's a you know mountain of sociological research that backs up this, this skew that, that exists and I think in every time that I am in a position where someone asks me that in some sort of public forum that, that it, it's almost indisputable and so I don't get there's not a lot of pushback and I think mm-hmm. that just is kind of a teachable uh, moment that happens when people are able to see you lay you know one, you know the dominoes end to end to end to end and you see how uh, that that uh, uh, policing practices influences crime statistics, uh, and how crime statistics influences the way people feel about uh, uh, aggressive um, incarceration of people, and how aggressive incarceration leads to mass incarceration, and how mass incarceration leads to a deterioration of a black family, black black communities, because you suck all of these young men out of the communities where they would otherwise be doing positive things, whether that be starting families or paying child support for children that they already have, and how that leads to the fact that there are now more kids who need uh, public assistance and, 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 and the, you know, the, the, their mothers are doing the best they can with those kids, but they can't read to them when they get home and cook the good meal so that, the, 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 that the, uh, uh, the, the, the more kids are overweight and they, go to, they start kindergarten and, not, and they're not um, up to speed in reading. And all of these dominoes lay end to end to end to end to end to end to end. And once you see the big picture of it, you see, okay, okay, now I see how, why we have to stop this. 
So um, I can take a hint really well, and I'm going to bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to bring it back to the book. Did I hit? Did I hit? <laughs> mess with Charles Blow, right? Um, we were uh, uh, in the room talking about just uh, our children and, and, and fatherhood uh, earlier, and I was sharing uh, with Charles a scenario. I was dealing with one of my sons, and not want to play football and uh, dealing with issues of whether I force him to play or give him an opportunity to, uh, uh, to quit playing football because he uh, really didn't want to play and the issues of masculinity and how I felt as a father. And so in your book, you, you, you certainly describe and talk about um, your father, mm-hmm. but at one point you talk about uh, Jed. Yes. Right, and, 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 and you refer to Jed as the uh, uh, the wholeness of Jed in the common spirit was a father figure. In Absolutely. And you say at one point he was the father that you wish you had. Yes. And so talk a little bit about Jed and your relationship with your father. And because I know we have some responsible fatherhood advocates yes. uh, in, in the room. And so take us down that so, so Jed is my grandmother, my maternal grandmother's fourth husband, because she liked to be married. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, she just said she didn't have a lot of luck staying in that uh, condition. Uh, she was persistent, though. You can take that away from her. Um, uh, and, you know, and she, she was kind of a you know, like to dress up and get the fancy shoes and whatever, and that's how she lost her third husband uh, <laughs> because she was now staying back with her husband back in my, grand, er, my great-grandparents' house, and, uh, but he couldn't read or write. Uh, and they had bought a car, and he, he, he trusted her to pay the bills and do, you know, do whatever needed to be done. Um, the problem was... That's not what she was doing. She was taking the car note money, and she she paid it once, I guess. And she would she would give him she gave him that car note bill that she had paid it, and he would put it away. And she'd steal it back, and she'd take the car note money to go buy clothes, and she'd give him the same one the next month. So the repo man shows up to take the car because it hasn't been paid, and he you know he goes into a rage, and there's no way my my wife has been paying this on time every month, and no 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 no. I have the receipts to prove it. He goes to the little box or whatever he has where this receipts is supposed to be. He can only find one. Uh, so that was his last day married to my uh, grandmother. Uh, but, but, you know, he, she, she marries Jed. And he, you know, this is the kind of man that I, I guess every woman wants to find. You know, I, I describe... He, both his common spirit and what always struck me about it was his eyes. Um, and I described them as they were the kind of eyes that saw down into the dark of you and drew up the light. Um, they were the kind that, that melted secret shame before it scarred the throat on the way out. Um, and that it would take a man with eyes like that to make Big Mama move to the middle of nowhere and, ba- and bathe outside, which they had no running water. Um, and, and, you know, I, I describe, you know, it is a point in the book where I describe her, she was like the river, always running, wanting to be somewhere other than where it was, 
that had finally met the ocean, vast and deep and exactly where it was always meant to be, and he was the ocean. Um, and you know, he did that with all of us. We always felt like we were in exactly where we needed to be and that he was this calming influence around us. And I actually stayed with him for the first three years of my life because my mom got dreadfully ill every time she got pregnant. She got pregnant very often. There were five of us stretched over eight years. Um, and so my middle brother, she, my grandmother would say, you know, uh, let me take this baby because you're, you you're too sick to take care of him. And she, my middle brother went there and when I was born, the same thing happened and I stayed for three years. My middle brother stayed there his whole life. He never came back home. Um, and, but, but, you know, Jed was this amazing person who you always felt loved and protected and cared for around. So tell us how that plays out uh, for Charles Blow as a father, single parent uh, of, of, of three children. How does that uh, impact how you father? You know, I, I mean, Jed died when I was very young, so I don't know if I can directly connect his parenting skills. I don't even know how he parented. I don't know if he ever parented. I mean, I, did, I don't ever remember him, like, chastising or correcting anything. I don't think he ever had to. It was like you were standing before the burning bush. It was like you were going to straighten up and act right <laughs> because it was the bush. Um, so I don't remember that about him. Um, However, you know, I, you know I, I can look at my own dad, and he, you know, he just wasn't capable. He wasn't equipped. He, he hadn't come from that sort of a family. It was, his family was very tumultuous. Um, and he, uh, he was a musician. First of all, my mom, although she can be a hothead, on all things social, the most conservative person. I think it was sort of like reactionary thing to my grandmother. She was, my mom grew up with her grandmother because she refused to follow her mom around with all these men, married, 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 married. So she was like, oh, you know what, you're doing too much, I'm going home. So she, she stayed with my grandmother, and so she was more like my grandmother, mm-hmm. and my, my, her, her grandmother, her, my great-grandmother, and less, almost the exact opposite of her mom. So whereas her mom, my grandmother, you know, the red dresses and the big hats. My mother never wore a hat. And literally to this day, there are four colors in my mom's closet. <laughs> Navy blue, black, white, and brown. <laughs> That's it. Like there is no, and we always like, somebody will like try to buy her something. She'll like, oh, this is nice. And it'll, like, it'll, it'll still be in the closet with the, with the tags on it because she's not going to wear it. She, there's no flash in her at all. And so, and, but I could never understand like how, that conservative woman, she, she always tells the story like she went to a nightclub one time and she was like, I couldn't believe it. I just, oh, everybody's smelling sour. You know? <laughs> you know? Uh, so she never went back. Uh, but my dad was a musician. So he stayed in juke joints. Like, I don't even understand how they could even be together. It didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. So, but like seeing her, you know, homebody, take, you know, washing clothes. I never thought. I didn't even think of her. I didn't think she slept when I was young. When I went to sleep, she was awake. When I woke up, she was up making breakfast. I never saw the bed disturbed. I just thought she just stayed up all night. So, 
but my dad, you know, he was, he was a musician. He was a, you know, a court, and there are no surviving pictures of my dad, by the way. But according to everyone, he was an incredibly handsome man. And I even, like, I, was, I ran for, I was a freshman class president at school, and there was a secretary of our, uh, the freshman class, and her mom came to one of our class meetings, I don't know why, and her mom pulled me to the side, she couldn't wait to get to me, to tell me how she had dated my dad when he was young, and, and I was like, I don't want to know all, I don't want to know all this, you know, that's, he was so handsome, and I was like, ugh. Uh, but, but, you know, he just wasn't equipped for it. And, and you know, and he, and he, the women liked him, and he liked the women, even when he was married to my mom, which almost made, drove her crazy. Um, and, you know, he just, he, he drank too much, he stayed out too much, and that was part of the, the breaking up of their marriage. And I saw this up close, and after they broke up, he he you know, fell further into alcoholism. And I just remember thinking, like, how hurt I was by that. Because I needed him, mm -hmm. and he just wasn't available. And I, I kind of modeled parenting off of what I got that was positive for my mom and being the opposite of what he was doing because I knew what I needed from him. And it wasn't like, you know, I, I, I have to... Gained a lot of empathy for my dad in writing this book, though, because I, you know, there was a period where it was just like, man, I'm done. But like, I can see how you can screw up something, screw up a good thing, and it can make you really sad. And you know, when you get older, you, you know, I think it was Oscar Wilde that said, "I'm not young enough to know everything." As you get older, you realize, you know, that you don't know everything, and and things are a little bit more complicated than the way children draw them. And um, and so I, I kind of understood it didn't it didn't excuse it, but I just understood mm -hmm. the pain of loss, yeah. and the way he had uh, lost uh, things, and I also was able to understand him continuing to try, which he you know I guess he didn't have to do, but he would still show up every he would show up for holidays, he would still show up. Every now he would sober up every now and then he would go and do something with us and take us somewhere and we would go to this place called Trucker's Paradise. I mean there's nothing to do. So we'd take us to the truck stop and they had like they had like games like pool tables and ping pong pinball machines in the back and give us a bunch of quarters and you know but it was but he was trying. In in his sobriety, for however long it lasted, he was trying and and I see him now with my kids. And he's actually a great grandfather. And I saw him like, you know, he, 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 he started to bring, it was a, it's an interesting way to try to compensate because men are not always the most articulate creatures in the, world, in the world. And he would just bring food. He would bring a bushel of tomatoes and they would be under the carport when we woke up. And that was, it was his, I always assumed it was his way of saying, I'm sorry, he just couldn't, he didn't have the language to say it. And it was, his way of trying to compensate, to give us physical nourishment for his lack of emotional nourishment. Um, so I, 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 I kind of came to understand him more. Mm -hmm. There's a really touching uh, moment at the end of the book where you talk about how you told your mother that you wrote this uh, right. memoir. Right. 
She's not happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he said a conservative mother that gave him a 22 revolver when he went off to college, just in case, <laughs> and carried brass knuckles in her purse. Um, but you talk about this moment where you told about the memoir, she cried, but right. then your father called you yes. to check on you. Yes. And, and, and you cried. Yes. It, um, because they still, you know, they still talk. It's, it's the sweetest thing. Like, um, the, he comes over and she, if there's food left, she feeds, she'll make him a plate. She's yelling at him the whole time. Yeah. Uh, but it's so sweet because he just walks in as if he lives there, but he doesn't live there. And she's ah, ah, talking, yelling, yelling. And she's, while she's doing it, she's making food for him. And she does his taxes. I mean, it's just, it's really sweet, actually. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, it is sweet. Uh, and, and so I know that they talk, and he takes it, by the way. He doesn't, he never responds, which I think is also his way of, of offering an apology. Um, to, um, and so I know they talk. And a couple of weeks after I called my mom and told her about the book, um, my dad calls me. My father has never called me in my adult life, ever. And the, the sound of his vo voice on the phone was jarring because I immediately recognized that it's him. And he, I could tell that he was incredibly nervous. And he says, he's so nervous that he doesn't know what to say. He says, who is this? <laughs> I'm like, you call me. <laughs> um, and, you know, he says, you know, my dad doesn't speak like, you know, the Queen's English. He says, you know, you just run across my mind, and I just need to call and check on my boy. And I just didn't know what to say. I don't know what he said after that, because now I'm like crying and trying to pretend that I'm not crying. Um, and he says something. I don't know what he said. I literally don't know what he says. And, and I get off the phone, and I'm like stunned by it. But I know that he was calling because my mom had told him. And he, he wanted to hear my voice. So Charles, what's uh, your vision? What's, what, what's the literary, literary legacy of Fire Shut Up? Oh, that's a big question. That's, I, I don't know. The critic is going to have to figure out what the literary legacy is. I don't know, what that, I don't know how to answer that question. I do hope, however, um, that people will read it and think that it is well written. I mean, that, I, mean I think that sounds corny. That's just, that is truly, that would make my make writing it uh, worth it for me. And if the people who do the advocacy work, whether it be among poor kids or kids who feel like they are up against a wall and they can't make it, or, or kids who've been the victims of childhood sexual abuse, or kids who are, who are, 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 are contemplating suicide, or, 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 you know, or, even, or adults 
in the same circumstances and people who feel like they cannot go on and they can, they can read this and, and see a light and say that I can make it and I can go on and I can persevere and I can get back up tomorrow although I've been knocked down today, that would be a beautiful legacy to have. And if, and if the people who advocate around those sorts of issues can use it as part of their advocacy, I would be honored if they were used in that way. And so, you know, you share the, through characters in your story, a full spectrum of black men right. in your book. And we, um, in the work that we do with the Campaign for Black Male Achievement, uh, we've been really intentional about shifting language. We were talking about language uh, earlier. And, uh, moving it from a deficit-based language, and, and, and black men always seen as uh, or characterized as uh, a problem, uh, the deficit, and how do we shift the language about black men to a more, and from your perspective, uh, asset-based? Well, I mean, I can only answer this question as I experience it, as mm -hmm. as my lived experience yep. dictates, and and so I grew up looking up to people like Martin Luther King and even, you know, Malcolm X, whomever. These are all incredibly smart men. I never thought of, I mean, we didn't have, rap, I mean, I guess we had rappers that were just starting Sugar Hill Gang or something. But, like, we, we didn't really have, that wasn't, that wasn't the ideal. You know, Martin Luther King, who is incredibly smart and incredibly well-educated, and even Malcolm, who was not formally educated to that degree. I mean, the thing about his his autobiography written by Alex Haley, who's another hero of mine, is, you know, he says, he sat down and read and learned every word in the dictionary. I mean, that, this idea that when I hear kids say somehow learning is anathema to, av to, mm -hmm. to, to strength and black masculinity, I'm like, well, who are you looking at? Because I, that wasn't part of my understanding of what black history was. And I grew up also with what I call my literary mothers and fathers, and the fathers were incredibly important to me. James Baldwin and Langston Hughes, and these people were, were telling me my life. I think that it's really, really important for, for us, for children to see themselves in art and literature. Because we first come to see ourselves and to know ourselves by reflection you have to see yourself reflected. And they were reflecting it for me. And I am hopeful that I can be part of the reflection for someone else, that you can see yourself in the art. Even, even you know, just um, the sitcoms on at the time, there was always an artist in the family. It was an amazing time. I mean, you, good times. JJ, JJ's painting, JJ's not selling not a single painting. But, <laughs> But they're like, you go ahead and paint, JJ. You know, that same easel is in the corner the whole time. But, but we grew up with this idea of aspirational families. And, 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 and everybody in these families were aspirational. And art was part of it. And literature was part of it. And, you know, if, if I'm looking at the cosmos, there are, like, paintings that I know hanging on their walls in that... In, on that set that's huge for people 
And I think that, that we have to connect these kids to the broader spectrum of what aspirational nature of their culture has been and can be. I mean, I grew up going to a high school that was founded as the first black college in North Louisiana. It was called Coleman College. It was founded to educate the sons and daughters of freed slaves. And, you know, there were no white, there were very few white kids in, in, in our school because they, all the white kids fled and they, they, mm -hmm. Louisiana opened up these academies and so all the white kids were still there. So I only, not only had this idea that all the smartest people in the room were always black people. I mean, I, I don't even have that complex where people like think, oh, I, am I good enough, smart enough? The stereotype threat, which is uh, uh, what it's described as, is you get in the room, you, if you test a bunch of black kids by themselves, they perform better than if you test them in a, in a room full of, in a mixed room, because they have a, mm -hmm. they experience a stereotype threat. They assume that they are not smart enough. Well, I've never had that. Right, because I'm, I'm one of the Coleman kids. There are pictures on the wall in the school of these people like sitting, suited up. I don't know, there's dirt roads out in front of that school back then. They're suited up, sharp as a, sugar sharp is what I call it. Sugar sharp. And like, so when I was thinking of history, I'm thinking of those men and women. And even in the middle of nowhere, they were learning Latin and botany. I mean, this is, that was the legacy as I understood it. So I think if we, part of what we have to do is connect people to that history and to that struggle and let these kids know that you are not, you, you, it didn't start with Jay-Z. I mean, like, not that I have anything against Jay, but like, it didn't start with Jay. I mean, there's a whole long history here and you're part, you're the continuation of that. You, your worth is not relative to anyone else. Remember that. You are worthy unto yourself. So we're going to transition in a moment to uh, question, uh, answering questions. Um, and where are the um, microphones and how, how we're going to do this? But I'm going to ask, you know, it, it takes a amount of courage to be vulnerable and pour your life out on the pages of, of this book. Um, when the book went to press, um, it was a done deal, and you were up at night thinking about this uh, memoir that is finally uh, coming to birth. What's the story that you wish you did tell in this book that you did not tell, and that you want to... Oh, it's all in the book? What are you talking about? <laughs> what? What, what is that? What is that question? You, you laid it all out. You didn't hold out, hold back anything. Well, there's nothing on the cutting room floor. There's That's nothing on the it's all done. Floor. All right, great, great. So uh, we are going to uh, line up and uh, have an opportunity to... So this is an opportunity to... Ask uh, Charles a uh, question, uh, not necessarily commentary. Some people want to come up and uh, call it commentary, right? This is a, a question and a commentary at the same time. So we're going to do a, a question for Charles, uh, and we're going to start with you, sir. Charles, uh, 
Um, this is a journalism question. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something I witnessed on CNN um, when there was the demonstrations with um, Michael Brown. Um, the demonstrators were out there and, and you know you had the journalists in the studio and then you had the journalists on the street. Well, the lady in the studio, she kept saying to this guy named John on the street, did you see the demonstrators shoot at the police? And he kept saying, yeah, yeah. She said, over and over, did you see them? So finally she said, John, tell me what you saw. And John said, I heard six shots. Then the police told me that the demonstrators shot at them. And this lady in the studio said nothing. She didn't say, John, you didn't see that. Um, She didn't say anything. They just moved on to the next place. And then as I watched over and over, there was no critique of that from even the people that defended the demonstrators, the people that defended Michael Brown. There was no critique of that at all that this man said, I heard six shots, then the police told me that the demonstrators shot at them. What is that about? I mean, I can't. I don't. I mean, know this, in, in your opinion, I, what is that? No, about? but I just, I, I'm sorry. I just can't even answer the question. I, I mean, if I, I didn't witness it. I don't know, you know, how that happened. I, I didn't watch it myself. It, I don't think it would be fair for me to even to comment on that. I mean, that you watched, you saw that. I just don't. I don't have any knowledge of that. Now, I mean, what is that about journalism? I, the whole, the whole thing with that was. No, I heard people say that um, people got shot, um, demonstrators got shot, and then there was no follow-up. Right. I mean, what right. kind of right. journalism right. is you're, that? You're criticizing them, that man, for, for commenting on something he didn't see, and you're asking me to come in on something that I and didn't j- see. Just I'm, I'm telling you that I, I'm not going to commit the same uh, kind of uh, problem with journalism that he, you are saying that he committed. I didn't see it, so I refuse to comment on it. The same way, if he if he didn't see something, he should not have commented on it. I just can't do that. I'm the sorry. amazing thing was that John really believed that he saw that. You know, the whole idea that the police told him that John believed that he saw that. Okay, okay. So I know. Yeah. I, 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 I get it. I, I get it. Uh, that, I get it. I get it. That question from his point of view. And I'm, are there any other uh, questions, conversations uh, that we would like to ignite uh, with uh, Mr. Blow? Hello, good evening, how are you? Um, My name is Sienna Greaves. I just wanted to go back on uh, what you were saying about the importance of African-American children seeing themselves in their art and culture. Um, There's always a debate within the community about the kind of art and culture that is being put out there. And I just wanted to know if you had any thoughts about, um, I don't want to say rap music, (laughs) I really, really don't. But let's just say contemporary African-American culture. And if we need to practice maybe more self-censorship, um, and the materials that we are exposing our children to. Thank right. you. Right. I think, you know, I am loath to, to, to condemn any form of art, even if I believe it's garbage, <laughs> right? Uh, you have a right as the artist to, to create it. I think that, as you said, we then have a right not to purchase. The problem becomes on the publishing and distribution ends, right? That uh, there's not enough, I saw this study a couple of months ago, there's just not enough children's books that have African-American characters in them being published. Even if, even if they get written, they don't get, they don't get 
published and distributed. And I have no clue as to whether or not what kind of music is being presented to record companies and are not getting a green light in favor of music that does. Uh, and that becomes the tricky part. We have a right not to purchase, but we also need alternatives uh, uh, to consume. And, and I think so both things are at play. Consumer taste, we have to take, take a stand, but record companies also, and publishers also have to give other content a chance. So you have a question? Hi, Mr. Blow. I'm a big fan of yours. And, Thank you. Uh, I love reading your stuff, and I guess what I really like is seeing your, your ability to bring the analytical, the data, compact that, juxtapose that, and weave that in very well. Um, one question I did have, though, as we talk about sexuality, male sexuality, and that has to do with our president, Barack Obama. Okay. I guess I need your, I need your, your views on it. Okay. Um, you had a president that essentially captured the world's number one criminal than the number two criminal. And yet, we continue to see from day to day this innuendo about this man's strength or his sexuality in an in, 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 in direct way. The questioning by uh, uh, folks very much on the right equating a lack of quick decision-making with somehow being he's not strong, which in my mind as a, as a black American, there's always an innuendo of what are, what are, the, what are we really hearing here? You know, um, is he not strong because he's not, he wasn't a football player, he played basketball, he went to Harvard, he did this. What's behind, I just want you to view what's behind that questioning of he's weak, he's not strong, he's not tough. What's behind that? Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, there's a, the question starts with a, a dangerous supposition, I believe, mm -hmm. um, which is, which is kind of rooted in misogyny. Okay. That, that, um, that, that male is strong and feminine is weak. That is dangerous from the beginning. I think we have to recognize that. And I think that probably the best response to it is the response that the president gives, which is not ever to entertain it. Um, to be contemplative and bright and not reactionary and not a cowboy with missiles <laughs> is probably not a bad thing. Um, and so w it, when I hear, you know, I do hear a lot of uh, talk th that feels very sexist, and, and some of it comes from women on the right, if you pay very close attention to that. Um, and it, it just further kind of illustrates for me that misogyny is not 
just uh, something that works against women, but it works against men and it works against us as, as a society. And that it can't be used as a weapon when smart people are talking. Thank you. Hello, Mr. Blow. My name is Dr. Manisha Sharma. First off, I want to say you are sugar sharp. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Um, I'm also an ex-New Yorker. Yeah. I'm a physician. I was a physician in the Bronx. And one of my big things is I'm a family medicine physician, so I take care of everybody. And I'm new implant here to Baltimore. Yes. Um, thank you, thank you. Um, <laughs> but um, my question to you is, you talk about art and culture, and one of the things, and you know, I saw children in the Bronx day in, day out, who struggled through being victimized by sexual abuse, being victimized by physical abuse. And one of my biggest passions is social determinants of health. And, you know, a lot of children in poor areas, the Bronx being one of them, Baltimore another, where these are areas that these kids spend a lot of time in school or time on the street. Or, and you talked about art and culture and bringing it back, but how do we hold our school system accountable for cutting art and culture? How do we hold our society accountable? As a physician, all I can do is just say, you know, keep in school, do your thing, be there for them. But it is very difficult to connect those dots. And I was just wondering, as an advocate in the boots on the ground, if you have any advice over how to sort of not fight the system, but right. be a part, be in the same sandbox with them and try to have that conversation, but it is very difficult. Right. <laughs> I, I, think it's, I think there's a lot of pressure on schools and teachers from every direction, right? So there's the, the, the in, this incredible testing apparatus that, that they are now suffering under, and so uh, uh, schools and principals and entire districts dispense with things like um, uh, uh, art, culture, playtime, uh, civics classes, yeah. um, and so they whittled it down to all they're taking is things that they will be tested on in these tests. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I often talk about going to this tiny school, but, you know, it, it's even little things. Like, I didn't know now that a lot of schools don't even have a lunchroom. They just, like, yeah. microwave food. Yeah. And, I remember, like, I couldn't wait to go to school. Like, there were cooks in there. Like, they, right. <laughs> it was delicious. Uh, and and they, we played, and there was music class, and it was a, just, the, you know, I can't even, I, you know, all these kind of soft things that are wiring the brain right. to make it able to receive the mathematical or language lessons. And all of that has been disaggregated. So now you have to pay for this soft stuff after school. So you, right. you, know, you pay for the, the violin lesson after school because you don't get it in school. You have to send them uh, you know, a peanut butter jelly sandwich because they, the, your kid hates the microwave pizza that, they, that comes from Mars. Like, no. <laughs> so the experience that I had where teachers were not completely confined, uh, constrained by a, a, a test was actually, I look back on it, I'm like, this is a beautiful experience. Mm -hmm. 
And I think we have to recognize that our kids are being cheated. I don't even think that we recognize how much our kids are being cheated. That, that school should be a fun, safe place to go where kids want to go and learn. And when you realize that your kids don't want to go, go there, there's a problem. Hi, Mr. Blow. My name is Dana Shelley. I'm a teacher at Morgan State University, and I brought some of my students here tonight. I know. I already knew that because those tweets have been all in my Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a great night because between your being here and Taylor Branch being here, this is definitely a room of writing and writers. I wanted to ask you, um, who inspires you? inspired you in your writing specifically and your advice for for young writers i mean i'm gonna say this i guess maybe this is the third time i'm saying this but i you know it's cliche and weird to say but i call these people my literary mothers and fathers and it is it is alice walker and and james baldwin and tony morrison and langston hughes and ernest gaines another louisiana boy and uh, uh, you know, these people who were writing about where I was from, the people who I could see them because they looked like me. Um, and I've, you know, lately I've had just a ridiculous Baldwin Tony crush. Uh, and, and I, I even realized that I actually need to. To, to read more different people, but I but 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 I look at books like 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 comfort food. We had a small bookcase when I was growing up. We read the same books over and over and over and over again. It was like Little House on a Prairie. You have one book, you read it again when you get to the end of it. So I'm used to reading the same text. Over and over, it's like the Bible. Like oh, I can get a new thing out of this, a new sermon out of this today, because it's going to reveal itself to me in a different way. And I, I kind of study these same books in that way. And you know, as I did a Q and A with uh, uh, Pamela Paul, who's the uh, new uh, editor of the New York Times Book Review, which is up tonight, actually. If you want to go check it out, and she, and one of the questions was what books are on your nightstand and I said well there's only one book that stays on my nightstand and it's not a book that people would think would stay on somebody's nightstand and it is uh, the encyclopedia of Afri African American of black folklore and humor because I like to read short things before I go to sleep and I like to laugh a little bit get, be, you know, so it's not exactly like the literary things the, the the, the novel and things I keep it with me when I'm traveling so that I can or I keep it on my um, iPad and and I'll read that way or I read a lot for work but but for me I really want, I, I'm always I want to you know James Baldwin had this interview where he said uh, um, and he wrote part of this but he kept saying it in interviews when he was writing his first book and he thought he would never finish and he went away, I think it was to Switzerland, and he says, you know, white faces and white mountains and white, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he says, he took with him a typewriter and a Betsy Smith record. Because he said it was Bessie that helped him 
to recall what it mu- what he must have sounded like when he was a child before he had learned to hide who he was and so i'm always interested in in literature that helps me to remind myself of what i must have sounded like when i was a child what i what people must have sounded like to me when they were speaking the beat and the cadence and the rhythm of speech as I experienced it. You know, Toni Morrison says this great thing where she's, she says, and it's not even a racist thing, although you know, I think people sometimes take it as racist. She says, when I say people, I mean black people. <laughs> and, and what she's saying is not that she's not, she can't, you know, because people kept asking Toni, well, when are you going to grow up and write about, you know, basically write about white people? And she was saying, no, 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 no. I wouldn't ask... Oscar Wilde to write, she didn't say this, but I'm saying, I'm going to ask Oscar Wilde to write my story, and I'm not going to try to write his. I'm going to write the experience that I lived. And so the people that I saw, I want to bring those people to life. So when she says people, the people she saw were black people, so that's what she's writing. And so I try to remember that as I write. To write your own experience. Even in the writing of this book, I when I was using examples or, or using metaphors, I re- had to remind myself to only use metaphors that that 9-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old would have had access to. So it is trees and leaves and dirt and you know, sweet gum trees and, 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 and honeysuckle bushes because that's all I would have had access to and that is how I would have described something if I had we're forced to at the time. And so write your story and write your life because your life is valuable and you are the authority of you. All right, yes. Thank you. We're going to do the last two questions because we are going to leave ample time for the book signing and I asked Charles if he had uh, enough inventory, and he said, well, he's not handling that stuff, but we're going to make sure whatever inventory there is, there will not be any uh, uh, after this, ample time. And that's going to uh, happen where the book signing? Outside. Right, right outside. Okay. Okay, last two questions. Hi there. I wanted to go back to some of the things that you said about masculinity. Right. Um, in particularly, you talked about uh, masculinity as this broad thing like an ocean um, or that in enabling our boys to be human and we enable them to be masculine. And I wondered um, if you thought that there were qualities that are distinctly masculine and qualities that are distinctly feminine. Um, or if, especially as you were writing this, you found that these masculine-feminine um, differentiations weren't all that helpful for thinking about forging human identity. Well, I, I think that people identify those things. I, I believe in the plasticity of them, and I believe in people being able to define it as they see fit. Right? That, that, that's why I'm a strong supporter of transgender rights. If you identify yourself as female, I, go, then you're a female. Right? If, if you, it, is, it is really about your definition, not about mine. Right? And once you realize that how you define yourself, how you see yourself, how you construct your sense of self makes it true, then you have the freedom. And, and it is not really 
you, it doesn't require some juxtaposition. Your femininity or masculinity or whatever is not defined by its juxtaposition to something that is other than it. It really is your construction of it. And that's why I believe that it is so wide. And therefore, that anybody who claims it becomes it. Last question. Thanks. Uh, good evening, Mr. Blow. My name is Jake Cohen. Um, I guess I have a question in terms of this moment in your life having just completed this memoir, which in writing a memoir seems almost to be this moment of like, everything else is behind me. And now there's, what, what is ahead of you? Where do you hope to go from here? And you know, I think Mr. Dove asked about your literary legacy. You know, what do you hope in terms of your legacy beyond that? Oh, I just, I just, I don't know. <laughs> I hope I can write another column when I get back to work. Um, <laughs> The, 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 question, the question is, is always like, you know, particularly when you're, once you get into the book business, your, your agent's like, this is the beginning of your literary career. I'm like, what are you talking about? You have to do this again? Uh, so I have no clue. But, I, but there's a tremendous amount of pressure that says that you should be writing your next book as soon as the, you finish the first one. I don't know what that book is. And I, but, I, but I believe that, that books find the authors who are supposed to write them. And that my job at this point is to be patient and wait for my book to find me. Thank you.